So as uh, Edna read for us, it all starts with Abraham, the story of God saving the world. God's epic drama of salvation for the nations, it begins with an old man where he sleeps at night and the risks he takes when he sleeps with his wife. If Abraham doesn't believe God's promise, he won't sleep in Sarah's tent. If he doesn't believe God's promise, he won't seek to be intimate with her when he sleeps with her in her tent. So God's grand plan, as told to us by the Hebrew scriptures, is launched by a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman crazy enough to think that they can make a baby. Somehow they dare to believe that God will use their awkwardness and their inadequacy for grand and far-reaching purposes. And this is what gets Abraham into the Hall of Fame. He sleeps with his wife. I want you to feel how literal this is. I want you to feel how grounded this is. It's one of the many treasures that Judaism has given us. You want to talk about God? You want to talk about faith in God? Let me tell you a story about an old man and an old woman making a baby. As Marcus reminded us right off the top this morning in his welcome, God meets us in the raw experiences of life. Okay, now that we're grounded, let's join Jesus on his way to Caesarea Philippi. It's a Roman power center, a group of villages, and Jesus is walking with his disciples and he's quizzing them. Well, who do you say I am? And Peter replies, you are the Messiah. Our text actually uses that Hebrew word Messiah rather than the Greek Christ, which is how our Bibles usually translate that verse, that word in verse 29. The two words mean the same thing. Although to my ears, the use of Messiah has a more political ring to it. And that's the meaning I will give it today because that's how it was understood by everyone at that time. The Messiah had a special anointing from God to change the world. Of course, Jesus knew that the enchanting effect, that his acceptance of that title, Messiah, would have on his disciples. He also knew that public acknowledgement, that yes, I am the Messiah, would cause great unrest among people and bring the power of Rome down on his head. It was too soon to deal with all of that. So Jesus gave his disciples strict instructions not to talk about this publicly. Jesus' identity as the Messiah has been a source of great confusion, hasn't it? We've often talked here, in our Sunday school classes in particular, about how Jesus was a different kind of Messiah than his disciples expected. 
But we're a little vague about exactly what kind of Messiah Jesus is, just as we're kind of vague about how Sarah got to be pregnant. Often we simply say that Jesus was a spiritual Messiah, not a political one, and we try to leave it at that. This matter of the Messiah has also been a huge source of division and pain, of strife between those who follow the Christian faith and those who follow Judaism. <coughs> Excuse me. Some years ago, Rabbi Jack Paskoff was here in our meeting house during the adult education hour. He's the uh, leader of the congregation at the corner of um, Walnut and Duke Street, there by LGH. I still have my notes from that day. Rabbi Paskoff said, When you read Isaiah, it's clear the Messiah will change the world, will bring peace to the world. Jesus didn't do that. So Jesus is not the long-awaited Messiah. We disagree with the rabbi, but why? Do we understand Isaiah differently than he does? I don't know. We treasure those Isaiah texts about peace, I think, just as much as he does. Are we prepared to make the case that Jesus changed the world, changed the course of history, divided all of history into two parts, the before and the after? Not so much. There is just too much violence in the world. So the rabbi's words often remain unanswered, at least in my experience. Well, let's imagine Peter at that moment with Jesus. Imagine him saying what he had often thought but had never dared speak aloud. Jesus is the Messiah, the one anointed by God to change the direction of history and bend all of the nations, all of human affairs toward peace. Imagine the thrill that Peter felt as Jesus implicitly confirmed this for the first time. This is Peter's moment of enchantment when he knows what the rest of his life is going to be about. Can we put ourselves in Peter's place? Can we experience that enchantment with Jesus, the Messiah? It's difficult for us, isn't it? 2,000 years later, at a time when our government is again threatening to make war on smaller and weaker nations. But yes, let us affirm together that Jesus has changed the course of history. In his life and death, Jesus has set into motion forces that never would have existed without him. Forces that continue to gather strength and momentum in our day. Please don't think this is just pious church talk. What Jesus unleashed in the world, says Anthony Bartlett in his book, Virtually Christian, and he uses language of physics. He calls what Jesus unleashed in the world a photon of love, a photon of compassion that knocked the earth off its axis and sent it spinning off in a different direction. Privilege, domination, the endless cycles of violence and retribution, none of it makes sense anymore. 
None of it is credible. Compared to Jesus, it's all illegitimate. It's empty. Bartlett sees this impact of Jesus everywhere, but especially in popular culture, in movies and in music. Peter didn't know what it would look like, but he was certainly correct in his expectation. That's what enchanted Peter, and it can enchant us still. But along with that enchantment, we must go back to our text, to what Jesus said next, to the most difficult part of what he said, and to the part that must be talked about during Lent. Anyone who wants to be a follower of mine must renounce self, must take up the cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. Jesus has just embraced the role of Messiah to change the world, to change history, to dethrone kings and powers and empires, to judge every ideology, every culture, every economic system, every personal achievement of ours, to say to all comers for all time, how does what you do, how does what you say compare to me? And after embracing all that, he predicts his own death. And he tells his disciples that if they want to be part of this, they too will renounce self and lose life and find their lives again. Because if you really want to change the world, not just rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, not just replace power-hungry Jack with power-hungry Joe, if you really want to change the world, you'll need to embrace the Messiah's costly way of doing it. And this is the uncomfortable part. We're too familiar with how the way of Jesus ended, how he was arrested as a lawbreaker and tortured and executed in the most awful way imaginable. We don't want to go there. So we seek comfort in the thought that Jesus' death is a singular event in history. I mean, people are killed every day by the empire. Jesus isn't the only one. Um, because people won't fall in line, they won't stop objecting to the occupying armies and the night raids and the drone attacks and the dead children. But that's not the same as Jesus being killed on the cross. And I agree. And yet, in verse 34, we see Jesus telling his disciples that if they want to be part of his way of changing the world they too will carry a cross. Jesus was sure of this, I think, because already here in Mark chapter 8, he knew that he would not use violence to change the world. Already here he knew he wouldn't save it by using magic or by suspending the laws of nature. Though still a young man, Jesus already knew what Abraham learned when he was 99 years old. The path to the promise is living the life we have in a new way. Sleeping in Sarah's tent, then trusting God for the rest. <coughs> Excuse me. So to those enchanted by Jesus' pledge to change the 
direction of history, Jesus says, follow me. I want your help to make all of this change visible, not only in Jerusalem, but all over the world. But my way of changing the world is high risk. It will not put you in charge of anything. It will put you outside of your comfort zone, and it will attract disfavor from the people who think they are in charge. In January, a couple months ago, I met a man who understands these words very literally. And by his literalism, I think uh, he can help us think through what they mean. Norman Lowry is the man's name. He's 59 years old, father of three, grandfather of six. Um, former assistant chaplain at Water Street Mission. He used to live here on East Chestnut Street, just the next block to the west of us here. And he often came to community meals on Monday night. Uh, he knows Pastor Ron and Pastor Sue. Uh, for the past, most of the past three years, he's lived on East King Street. That's right, he's an inmate of the prison. There he's been serving time for activities at the military recruitment office near Park City. Activities that include blocking the entrance, breaking windows of the recruiter's vehicles, and trespass. Norman did these acts as a witness of conscience against the war making of the United States. He's convinced the violence our country has unloosed on the Muslim world is bringing God's judgment down on us. Indeed, he thinks it has already begun. During the hour we spent together in January, Norman talked mostly about the men he's with in prison. He knows some of those men from his days back at the mission. They're very keen to know about God, and they're very open to talking about Jesus. Norman spoke of the violence he sees in prison, much of it by the guards, not all, certainly, but a good deal of it. The racism of the domination system at work. Norman spoke of our society's enthusiasm for locking up black and brown persons for petty crimes, and the way churches often support that kind of locking people up. Norman talked a lot about Jesus and how Jesus mingled with the outcasts and the marginalized of his day. Norman's enchanted by Jesus. He wants to do the same and has found a way to do it. He's content in Lancaster Prison. He feels close to Jesus there. He says he's occupying the prison as a missionary there. Now, maybe I don't know Norman well enough to put him here in our sermon for the morning. It's just that the day I began reading Mark 8 was the day, the same week that I got to meet Norman for the first time, and I really couldn't avoid making the connection. Here's a man who has looked hard at life and death that America is creating and has compared it with life with Jesus. And after counting the cost, he has decided to follow Jesus cross and all, and he's happy with his choice. Now, his example is too much for us, too much for me. I can't imagine being him. Yet the starkness of his example clearly brings into focus several aspects of the Lenten journey. 
our disillusionment with the direction our society is going, our enchantment with Jesus' promise to change the world, the cost of stepping out of one, of what, out of what is and into what will be, and the energy and the purpose we find when we make that crossing over. I've heard many of you testify from time to time about times when you stepped over from one to the other. In your lives, I've seen what that looks like in ways less dramatic than Norman's, but just as grounded in life. As part of your reflections during this Lenten season, I ask you to remember the times these times of crossing over from your life, your disillusionment with the way life has been packaged, your enchantment with Jesus' way, your fear of the cost, and your crossing over. A couple of years ago, I wrote a poem, Giving Up Empire for Lent. It reflects one little, insignificant maybe, crossing over in my life. It's very much about disillusionment and a little about being re-enchanted. Let me read it for you. Play music in the morning. Let NPR be quiet for a change. Enough of their turning the awful into reasonable-sounding things. That New York Times on the newsstand, let it lie till it's yellow with age. They provoked the Iraq invasion. Now it's Iran we're supposed to hate. The suits on the evening news reporting what an anonymous source said. It's just another inside player dealing both sides of the game. Let it all go till Easter, part of the purge and the cleansing we need if we're to tell truth from fiction, if we're ever to believe. This is part of what Lent gives us, the invitation to admit the trouble we're in. This is what Paul is doing in the passage that Rachel read from Romans chapter 3, with his recitation of gloomy texts from the Hebrew scriptures. It's not so much that we as individuals are so horrible, although sometimes we are horrible, but more to the point, I think, of what Paul is saying is that something has gone horribly off track, and it's carrying us along with it. Lent invites us to acknowledge the deceitfulness that permeates our society and seeps into our lives. And when we get quiet enough, it even invites us to confess that sometimes we're more comfortable with the lies than we are with the truth. We have four, nearly five weeks for this remembering, before we reach Good Friday and the cross. By then, uh, if we've done our homework, the cross will be less incomprehensible than it is today. We'll have had time to consider whether we are still enchanted by the one who changed the direction of history. We'll have asked ourselves, when and where am I living in the new world that he began, and when and where am I still living in the old one? We'll have counted the cost of moving from one to the other, of carrying the cross. And all through our introspection, God will be our help.
Of that we can be sure. Amen.